Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Whatever you want to say about McConnell, at least he's been strategic. We have been completely feckless. I think. And I'm tired of it. Hello, and welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Senator Michael Bennett, who is now in the presidential race, one of now more than 20 candidates in the presidential race. But I think it's worth uh, paying real attention to Bennett. A lot of people don't know his name, not a not a high name recognition candidate. Senator from Colorado, he is absolutely one of the most respected members of the Senate by his colleagues. I actually had somebody, uh, one of the presidential candidates, one of the major presidential candidates, years ago, I was talking to them about 2020 and asked who they wished would run. And Bennett was the person they named to me. Um, now, I don't think they're going to drop out and endorse him, but he's held in really unusually high esteem by his colleagues. And he has been radicalized. I don't think I've seen anyone else in my time covering politics who's moved as far from coming in and honoring the institution and its its norms and decencies and you know bipartisanship. He was a member of the Gang of Eight that came up with the immigration bill that never got a vote in the House, but did clear the Senate, which was a, a, a big lift in and of itself. And over the past couple of years, he's just really moved. He's really seen the way Mitch McConnell um, runs the Senate. Um, he's really seen what the Freedom Caucus is doing. And he's really come to see the Republican Party as much as he is somebody who is good at working in a bipartisan way, who wants to work in a bipartisan way. He's come to see the Republican Party as a party that cannot really be worked with, a party that is centrally the problem for American governance. And hearing that journey he's taken, I think is a powerful thing. It's it's worth watching in here. Now, my question for him is whether or not he's come to solutions that are proportionate to the problem. He's much more on the side of mass mobilization and persuasion and naming the problem and the people who are causing the problem than he is on the side of, of pretty far-reaching structural reforms. I mean, he's open to a number of them. We talk about them in here. But I do wonder if the level of governmental dysfunction that is powering his candidacy, that has made him feel that running for president right now um, is something that he needs to do, whether or not that is actually reflected in his agenda. Does he have something big enough to the scale of the dysfunction that he is pointing out? The other thing we're saying about Bennett is he's got a pretty ambitious set of policies. Uh, they're not he, He's not one of the democratic socialists in the race, 
But as somebody who is really a proxy for the median Democrat in the Senate, if Democrats had a governing majority, the kinds of things Bennett is pointing out are the kinds of things it actually could pass. This is, I think, the like the the ambitious kind of technocratically ambitious version of the mainstream democratic agenda right now. And there are a couple of things in here he talks about, but the one I'd really pull out is the American Families Act, which is a, a proposal that would magnify the child tax credit such that it would end extreme child poverty in this country that would cut uh, child poverty in general by about 45%, according to estimates I've seen. And I think, and I say this in here, is probably the most important education policy that that anyone could pass. It's also a policy that could pass through reconciliation. So even if you didn't get rid of the filibuster, you could do this. So I think there's a lot of power in this policy. I think it's something that whether Bennett wins, which I think is a, a long shot, but you never know, or somebody else wins, you could really imagine them picking this up as well. Uh, but I think this is one of the more impressive and potentially effective policies that anybody is proposing, and it deserves to, to to be more in the debate. So I appreciate him being here. His new book is called Land of the Flickering Lights. It is primarily an indictment of how poorly Congress works today um, and, and, and tries to think about what could be done about it and particularly how Americans could be called forward to think differently about it. But you'll hear in here, it's something that is close to his heart, and I appreciate him being here, explaining it and debating it with me. Here's Senator Michael Bennett. Senator Michael Bennett, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. It's great to see you. It's great to see you, too. So why why run for president? You got a nice life. You're a senator. It's an exciting yeah. job. Why run for president? I just think we are at a turning point in this in this country's history, an incredibly important inflection point after... 40 years of um, essentially no economic mobility in our economy and the destruction of our political institutions. I view Donald Trump very much as a symptom of those problems, not as not as the essential cause. And I think it's important for somebody to to run and and tell the American people the truth about what's actually happening to our system of self-governance. You feel the other candidates are not telling the truth about that? I, I, don't, I don't think they're lying about it, but I don't think it's part of what they're talking about with the American people. And if we don't contend with the issues that are preventing us from this exercise in self-government working, uh, I don't think, you know, you can promise anything, but you're not going to be able to deliver anything. So what is missing from their diagnosis or discussion? I would say the the damage that has been done by um, Mitch McConnell and the Freedom Caucus over the last decade and the tyranny that we've lived under because of um, their idiosyncratic view of uh, what America wants uh, for its kids and for our future and for our place in the world and the damage they're willing to do to our institutions to deliver their idiosyncratic vision of the country. I think if you don't understand that and you don't have some theory of how to beat them, to contend with what they've done, then we're not going to be able to make progress. And Ezra, that's really why I'm running, because I see the last 10 years of my life in the Senate as essentially a terrible waste of the American people's time. And we don't have time to waste, whether it's the economic situation I described earlier, whether it's the urgent need to address climate change, whether it's you know my abiding concern, which is whether enough kids in this country are getting a decent education, if you care about any of those things, you cannot accept the, the the limitations of our current political arrangements because we won't be able to make progress. But here's the thing. So I've read your book, which is beautifully written, by the way. Um, and you. I read your your Medium essay. Everybody announces on Medium now. And I under I, I hear in those in that work the frustration with McConnell, the Freedom Caucus. Explain to me better your plan to beat it. To, to, to change a system that we're in such that it can work again? I, I, I think there are really 
I mean, several different things. One is there are things that we need to change in our political system itself. So reforms that we need to undertake. We need to end political gerrymandering, for example, in this country. We need to do something about the money in politics. I would um, ban members of Congress from ever becoming lobbyists. I think that would be a helpful change. I would ban members of Congress from having health insurance until we had universal health care in America. I think that would be a helpful change. But beyond those kinds of things, and there are a number of things that we could do, um, involves a couple things. One, identifying this problem as a, as a problem that needs to be contended with. In other words, you cannot compromise with McConnell. You cannot compromise with the Freedom Caucus. I say that, by the way, representing a state that's a third Democratic, a third Republican, and a third uh, Independent. And I work every day of my life with Republicans who are my constituents and who deserve my uh, representation, whether they will ever vote for me or not. McConnell and the Freedom Caucus are not representing Colorado's Republicans. In my view, it may sound presumptuous of me to say that, but I believe that they need to be beaten or closed over. And you think about something like the immigration bill that we passed out of the Senate that never got a hearing in the House because of the Hastert rule. That's the kind of thing where we can we can close over them without having to literally remove them from office. But I think the other piece of this has to be that we have to, as Democrats, create an agenda that's appealing to the American people. It's appealing to states like the one that I represent, that speaks to the middle of our country geographically in order to build public support on the outside to do the work that we need to do on the inside. This continuous press release battle in the nation's capital that doesn't actually advance the cause of the American people has to come to an end. And I think what has been demonstrated over the last 10 years is it is a lot easier to create a constituency to maintain and reinforce the status quo than it is to create a constituency for change in this country. And that is a step we cannot skip, I think. I want to hold you on Mitch McConnell and the Freedom Caucus here for a minute because Mitch McConnell gets reelected every six years. Um, Democrats run candidates against him, but have not been able to beat him. The Freedom Caucus folks, they get reelected. Their constituents think they're doing their jobs, right? They're popular for stopping you. They're po- I mean, Mitch McConnell runs around the country bragging about Merrick Garland, right? Two Republicans, he's a hero for what he did with Merrick Garland. So what would you do about it? Like, what, what, what is your answer to that problem? My answer to that problem is that the American people need to understand the devastation devastation that Mitch McConnell has caused, and they don't understand it well. Um, I also don't think most of the American people, if it were revealed to them what the Freedom Caucus's position is on a range of items from immigration till to climate change, would support them. That the the fact that they have gerrymandered themselves into districts where they are um, completely you know, supported by the people that they have is a reality, but it is an inconvenience that we have to deal with, you know, which is why we have to end political gerrymandering, because those people can't be beaten under the current circumstances. We could have isolated. I think that there are a whole range of places. Look, we have gotten crushed by McConnell on judges. Crushed. And we, and I believe, I know you and I have had disagreements from this t- from time to time. I believe that the Democrats have played into his hands over and over and over again. Over the filibuster. Over the filibuster. Over the judges. You think that if Democrats had not changed the filibuster in 2013, was it, that McConnell would have kept it in, in the face of Democratic obstruction? 
there is no reason to believe that we couldn't have constructed another gang of 14 on judges. We had done it before. We could have done it again. There was no will on the part of McConnell or the, the Democratic leadership to do that at the time. But it doesn't make it the right thing to do. And, as res- and it doesn't mean that it was impossible to go down another route. And that route we had gone down before. And that route in- preserved something that I think the American people wanted, which is a world where if you have a qualified person that's been nominated and is going to, to the Supreme Court, that a vote of 90 or 95 or 88 senators for that person helps give the American people a sense that we do have an independent judiciary, that we haven't politicized it, that we haven't taken what's hopefully our temporary partisan insanity and exported it to another branch of government. We decided not to do any of that. Nobody stood up for that idea. Nobody stood up for the American people. It's my great regret that I was part of that, and I've I've apologized for it on the floor of the Senate, which I can say is more than than others have done. Uh, But the reality is that Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell will have changed this judiciary for a generation, not just because they're putting right-wing people on, but because they're putting people on, many people on that are not qualified, who are ideological, and uh, don't have the temperament to be good judges because they only have to get 51 votes. They no longer have to get a bipartisan vote. And I think from the American people's perspective, not politicians or Washington's perspective, that comes at a considerable loss. And it was this generation of politicians that decided that reinforcing the idea of um, an independent judiciary was less important to them than the partisan game of shirts and skins that we've been playing. Let's hold the judiciary for for a second because I want to come back to this. But you think we should keep the filibuster? I do think that we should keep the filibuster. I'm not convinced that we should get rid of the filibuster. How are you going to get any of the big things you want to get done done with the filibuster? You have a big climate plan. You can't pass out with 51 votes. Well, I wrote a big climate plan that's meant to appeal to people, other, not just the, the Democratic base. You know, I wrote a climate plan that's about figuring out how to deal urgently with climate. So there, I want to be clear about this. There is can be no compromise on the science with respect to climate. We need to act uh, urgently and we need also to create a durable solution. If we create a two-year solution to climate change and the Republicans come in and rip it out two years later, we've done nothing for climate or for the next generation of Americans. What I'm seeking to do with my proposal is show how rural America can benefit economically um, and how farmers and ranchers can benefit economically by treating conservation as an important part of climate change, by thinking hard and, and, and doing something about sustainability. I've been spending time in Iowa the last few weeks, and it's incredible. You know, our topsoil is literally, because of climate change, is literally flooding into the Gulf of Mexico. Generations of Americans have farmed that topsoil and now we're 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 risking um, um, having it all disappear because of our inability to get climate change dealt with. So I don't believe, Ezra, in the end, that the difference between whether we have enduring climate change policy is 51 votes versus 60 votes. I believe the difference is whether we have a functional political system in America or whether we don't. But and, and obviously, this is a conversation you and I have been having for in, in some way or another for yeah. years. But but I right. do want to push on this because attention to me and the way you think about this is that on the one hand, you've come to view the Republicans, I think correctly, as unbelievably cynical. 
right? Mitch McConnell, the Freedom Caucus, the people who, and it's not just Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell's caucus unites behind Mitch McConnell, right? He's not right. a, he's not a, right. like a right. wizard. That's right. <laughs> it's not a Jedi mind trick. Like they back him. And yet then you say somehow they're going to back a climate bill. Like they're not. They're... I don't think they will. I don't, th- and I don't think they will. So what, so then what's the answer there? But I, but I also think that if you take the, 60 vote threshold down to 51 vote mm-hmm. threshold. Um, you better be careful because you better be sure that Mitch McConnell isn't in charge of that 51 votes. He'll dismantle everything. And people who say, oh, no, he won't. I think we finally found the outer edge, by the way, of these guys, the the one place where they're not willing to go down the rat hole all the way. And that is this Alabama abortion law last week. But until then, you're quite right. And I I, I guess I would say this. I'm old enough to remember a Republican Party that existed before this Tea Party-dominated Republican Party existed, and I'm optimistic enough to think that we are not going to be stuck with the incredibly lame partisan politics that we have right now. This, the, you, whatever you want to say about McConnell, at least he's been strategic. We have been completely feckless, I think. And I'm tired of it. I'm tired of losing to climate deniers. I'm tired of, you know, what we've done to the courts. And I I think the solution to that is mobilizing the American people. Look, I sh- and in that way, I share Bernie's view, ironically. Right. I, I think the idea is you got to mobilize the American people. I just think you can do it with ideas that are different from the ones that Bernie's proposing. Or not just that you can do it, that you should do it with ideas that are different. You should do it with climate ideas that are different. You should do it with healthcare ideas you, you, that are different. When you say that the, the answer is mobilizing the American people, this is Barack Obama was an incredibly talented politician. You're very much in the wing of the party that he represented. The way you think about politics, the kinds of ideas you put forward, they're they're in the realm of the things that o- Obama did. Obviously, you've had you know years of, of experience now beyond where 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 his presidency ended. Mobilizing the American people is important, but it's not enough, not in a Senate that is equal proportion between the states the way that it is, not in a Senate that requires a 60 vote threshold, not in a country that has an electoral college. I mean, Hillary Clinton mobilized more people than Donald Trump and Donald Trump is president. So there's something here. I take your point about Democrats being feckless. But one of the ways in which they seem feckless to me is that a world in which D.C. and Puerto Rico are states as they should be where there is no electoral college, as there shouldn't be, where there is no filibuster, is a world where they have the power to govern. But as it is, it seems to me that the trap y'all keep getting into is you don't have the power to govern, and then they're frustrated by the lack of ability to govern, and then angry at the Republicans, but nobody quite wants to change. I don't want to say nobody, but there is a resistance within the caucus as a whole to changing the system in a fundamental way because people think it'd be unfair or could be used against them. But this thing isn't working, right? Like the thing you're talking about now, it's it's not working. It's not. It's completely broken. The question is, what are you going to be able to do to fix it? I'll be dead by the time we change the electoral college system. Literally, <laughs> I'll be dead. I think so. I think we all will. <laughs> I, so I so that's not on my list because I want to do stuff now. I don't want to do stuff when I'm dead. So you got to decide what the things are that we can do. I mean, if we went out to the American people and said members of Congress should lose their health care before, as long as the American people don't have universal health care. And you built support for that and you were able to take that to the floor of the Senate, you might actually st- see something change on that score, for example. But if we're going to live in a place where we accept that the best strategy we can hope for is for Mitch McConnell to put the, blue green, the new Green Deal on the floor, 
then we're going to continue to lose. Now, you might be right and I might be right about which of these things we need to change. Uh, But, you know, I think it's possible for us to change political gerrymandering in this country because I think Americans believe in the fundamental principle that voters should choose their politicians, not the other way around. So that's on my list in a way that the Electoral College is not on my list. Why do you see those two as different? To me, one thing that one thing that's interesting about a bunch of these is a bunch of them feel to me like they could, and I'm writing a piece about this, they're just, they're all an argument for democracy. Something I think about a lot is that right now, of the House, the Senate, the presidency, and the Supreme Court, the Democrats have won more of the relevant elections that would have led to control of all of them. Democrats control exactly one of the four. We are so far from a democracy that it is, laughable. So why do you think that the gerrymandering principle is appealing to people, but the electoral college principle, for instance, is not? It's not. I think the electoral college principle just is too, you know, complicated. It's not, it's too hard. You need a constitutional amendment to deal with it. Um, The gerrymandering, we can just pass a law in Congress that says you cannot, in fact, I've written that. I mean, you cannot gerrymander for political purposes. By the way, there's been a long time when Democrats opposed that idea because they thought that we were somehow getting political advantage out of out of political gerrymandering. I think that's demonstrably not true. But I agree 100 percent with what you just said, which is this is about being on the side of the democracy. That's what my whole book is about. My book is, a, is in a sense, is a love letter to our democracy. Uh, and And it's in that vein that I'm so angry about what the Freedom Caucus has done. And they are tyrants. Those people and and the people that have that have that have allowed them to do what they have done seek to deny people the right to vote. They seek to make it harder for people to vote. They 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 want to control majoritarian institutions with minority rule. And they look for every opportunity to to do it. I also think that things are going to change in our country too. I, some of these southern states are going to become democratic states over time. Uh, and uh, that'll be good because it'll compensate for the structural problem that exists in our Senate, you know, and that we do have a structural problem there. But you're not going to unfix the idea of two senators from every state. How about Puerto Rico and D.C.? Yeah, yeah, they should be. They would, should. Would be. that be like a thing you would just do straight off if you became president? I would be for that. I'm for that. And it, that fulfills the health of the democracy, which is what we really need to be talking about and, and fixing. Um, you know, the other thing I think it's worth noting, Ezra, is also in fairness, not a way, not as an excuse, but just a reality. It is a lot easier to immobilize the government than it is to accomplish anything with the government. So the idea that this is in any way a fair fight that McConnell is winning is not true. He's he's winning a fight where he has all the advantage. And then on top of everything else, he's just much more strategic than than we have been. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. 
They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I want to go back to judges, which I think are actually now an interesting thing to bring into here, because something you were saying is that the American people have lost an equilibrium in which judges would get appointed, uh, Supreme Court judges would get appointed 95, 98, 99. I mean, Antonin Scalia was an almost or maybe actually was a unanimous vote onto the court. And one of the things I see happening in, in the judicial space, which I think reflects on everything else we're talking about here, is as this country has become more polarized, as the divisions between the two sides become greater, the stakes become higher. They rationally become higher. Um, it used to be, for instance, and there's political science on this, that Supreme Court justices were more unpredictable in how they ruled than they are now. So isn't it rational for justices to be politicized, for these not to be 95, 98, 99, 100 to zero votes? Because they are, in fact, ideological people chosen through political means, ruling on, in many cases, very politicized controversies. I just wonder if we can ever really go back there or that itself was an irrational equilibrium. Well, I don't have any idea whether we can go back there. And I'm not claiming we can go back there. I think that we have done so much damage in just this generation of politicians has chosen to inflict the damage that we've inflicted on the judiciary. That's our decision. We decided to do it. I have no idea whether we can go back. What I do know is we should never have put the American people in this place, that we had a responsibility to do everything we could have done to avoid it, and we didn't. And so Donald Trump now has twice as many circuit court judges as Barack Obama has. Until we change this, if we ever do change this, instead of trying to advertise themselves as open-minded jurists, what you're going to have is people auditioning for presidents to pick me because I'm the most conservative judge in the land, pick me because I'm the most liberal judge in the land. And by the way, this isn't in this context at all a call for moderation. This is a call for somebody on the court with an open mind. And have there been people that have been political on the court since the founding of our country? Absolutely. Overall, did the American people have confidence and trust that our courts were not political and that our courts served as an independent branch of government as they were designed to do? I would say absolutely until the present moment. And there's a lot that's been lost there. I mean, you know, I I, uh, I think we've done a lot of damage. I think that you give the American people too little credit a bit. When you say we put, you, you meaning the senators, um, we put the American people in that place, didn't the American people put you in that place? Didn't they, we, we repeatedly elect people who treat these judicial fights in that way? I, I think it's exactly the opposite. I think the system is so corrupt that the American people don't have any say over it. 
you went to you come to my town hall meetings, Ezra, and have a conversation with people and ask them, would you rather have judges put on by the barest partisan majority or would you rather have broad bipartisan support for judges? Eighty five percent of the people would say the latter. Right. But that's not the question. It's this judge or that judge. Right. I mean, it's they come to you and the question is, do you vote for Brett Kavanaugh or Neil Gorsuch? I disagree. I just disagree. I think that they want to have a system. If asked, if asked, they would say, we want a system that's independent from the political branches. We want a system that's insulated from the partisanship of the political branches. That's what the vast majority of the American people would say. And they've gotten exactly the opposite. And I don't think that's about my thinking too little of the American people. I think that's a reflection of how corrupt our system of politics is and how unresponsive it is to what they want. They want – if you ask the American people, do you want to deal with climate change and is it real and are humans contributing to it and should we do something about it? They would say yes. Do you, do you think people should have universal health care? They would say yes. Yet on fight after fight after fight, we keep losing. And when I say we in that context, I mean the American people who believe those things. But so then why do the, the politicians who vote in this way get reelected? Why do they get reelected? Or elected in the first place. I mean, Donald Trump was very clear about the kinds of people he'd put on the court. Mitch McConnell was very public on the Garland thing. I think because our standard of what our elected officials uh, should be doing have slipped beneath the waves because our elected officials, by and large, are so bad. And we, if we had the same standard for our national elected officials that we did for uh, our local uh, county elected officials or mayors or superintendents, there isn't a single one that would get reelected. And that standard has slipped because of lots of reasons. And politicians have become really good at achieving nothing and going home and blaming the other side for the fact that they couldn't achieve anything. And they managed to survive reelection. There are all kinds of other reasons they survived reelection, too. But I think it also should be said, Ezra, that in the – just to not gloss over any of this, that in the last decade, the people in Washington that would be more likely to work with a guy like me have lost. And the people they've been replaced with have won. And so you look at the Senate today, it's much more Tea Party-ish than it was when I got there. And that my, – my answer to that is – oh, no, let's just get along and we're going to work together and I know how to do. My answer to that is we have to ring the alarm bell and people have to understand what these people really stand for and what happens to a Senate when you lose, you know, when you lose, even while we're winning the majority in the House, when the Democrats lose Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota and, and, and Claire McCaskill in Missouri and Joe Donnelly in Indiana – and what that means to the Senate as a body and to our chance of getting any of this kind of stuff, you know, what you and I are talking about done. It's costly. So I want to think about this for a minute, because on the one hand, I want to say what you're saying is right. Right. I mean, the, the, the equilibrium here is grotesque. Uh, and so I don't want to take away from that. I just the part of me, the part where I'm having trouble with this analysis. And as you know, I'm writing a book about polarization and trying to think through these things is that the disagreements run very deep. I don't think it's that people didn't know what Donald Trump was. He was incredibly clear about what he was. He ran for president and like what he was and what he represented was gross and it was clear. Mitch McConnell is very clear in what he was. And, you know, you talk about the mayors and the town councilmen when they become members of Congress and members of the Senate all the way up, they just become more partisan. There's something happening in the system to them. And in my view, we have this big country that has become increasingly very, very sordid. And the disagreements between Kentucky and California run very deep. 
and we just don't have a good mechanism for resolving them. But the the place where I, I I'm a little um, uncomfortable with the the way you're putting it is that I do think there's a tension in the American people where. If you ask them, do they want it to be so bitter, so partisan? Do they want people to be confirmed 99 to zero? Do they want it to be so political? Of course not. But then you ask them about the issue itself, and they have really, really deep disagreements, and they don't want to compromise. And the thing about a lot of, you know, Joe Biden gave his announcement speech the other day, and he was saying that he just everybody should just do their jobs, Republicans, Democrats, senators, legislators, but their constituents think they're doing their jobs. And and I don't think it's just that their view of what the job is has gone down. I think their view of the job is represent me. And I disagree with those um, crackpots out on the coast. Yeah. Well, in the first place, I hope you don't think I'm saying just do your job. No, 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 I'm not. I'm just I'm thinking about the, the ways this gets phrased. But I but I also I'm not sure. I mean, I can only give you my perspective on this. But but having now spent 10 years in this job, here's what I think. If you'd asked me who's running Washington 10 years ago, I'd have given you one answer. Today, I would tell you the cable television news shows and the the folks that interact with politicians on social media are incredibly well represented in Washington. That's 12 <laughs> that million people. To me. They, they are really, really well represented. And all of the partisan hatred and stupidity and just the, the lack of accountability that all of that represents. And by the way, utter lack of, you know, asking anyone in America for a sacrifice for anything because because every day you can have this great Potemkin partisan battle that sells advertising on television and and foments, you know, folks on Twitter. Those folks are really well represented. That leaves 320 million Americans who have no representation in America. And I think that if we said that 320 million people is who we want to represent, those 320 million people is who we are going to pay attention to. And by the way, in order to do it, we're going to have to overcome a bunch of stuff, whether it's the filibuster in your you know, estimation or whether it's gerrymandering, political gerrymandering in my estimation and clearly money in our politics. We're going to have to do some of that stuff like a Teddy Roosevelt progressive era to just begin to do the work again of governing. But then I think you got to give people an agenda that says, what does it look like? I just read a piece this week by a couple of guys in Poland who wrote, I, don't, I forget if it was in the Post or the Times, about how they're dealing with the reactionary government that they have in, in Poland. And the, one of their answers was, you got to have an agenda. And I think you do. We need an agenda that's broadly appealing to American people, that's not so complicated that people can't understand it, that actually reflects their priorities, not the cable news priorities, and they're not the same thing. And it's really hard. It is really hard. Nothing I'm saying here is easy. But uh, Americans have had to do hard stuff before. That's partly what my book is about. And we've got to bear down here and do a better job. I can't, but I don't, you know, the reason I don't accept, even though those 12 million people get representation and no one else does, when I go home, there is a consensus on higher ed and K-12 and 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 infrastructure and global warming. And it's not an issue of whether we agree or disagree. The whole system is designed on the notion that we're going to disagree. We're going to have disagreements. And it's not, in my view, and this is what a lot of my book is about too, it's not about consensus. You know, it's not about finding some lousy, moderate place in the middle of two parties' antiquated ideas. It's about taking the energies of our disagreements and forging more durable and more imaginative solutions than any one of us could come up with on our own. 
as a tyrant or a king. I accept that our political system is broken right now. I accept that getting that stuff done is very, very hard. I accept that Mitch McConnell, as a human, is incapable of governing in that way. But I don't accept that that's human nature. I don't accept that our political system always has to be the same. I do look at history and say we have had these terrible inflection points from time to time in our country's history, and we've overcome them, and we've made the country more democratic, more fair, and more free. That's what we have to do again. So when he ran for president, um, Barack Obama gave a very similar critique of cable news to, to the one you're giving now. And he hated cable news and he would talk about Politico. And he really pushed that. And he was a great mass mobilizer in politics. And he was great at explaining a certain form of the national identity and, 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 and a certain form of um, policy. Like he was a very, very talented yeah. political communicator who shared a lot of your analysis. So what did he do wrong that didn't fix it that you would do right that would? I, I think we never understood. I, I, I got an answer for you. And by the way, Ezra, I want to go back to your observation about they knew what they got, what were voting for when they got Donald Trump, just for a second. But let me, on this, um, I remember when President Obama was running uh, for re-election, he said over and over again, when I get re-elected, the fever will break. Do you remember him saying that? I, I do. I, and I think he believed that. And I think he believed that these guys, with their degraded view of our institutions, with their ahistorical sense of what the founding fathers were really doing and what America has is, has accomplished or not accomplished over the years, that we would be able to, in effect, um, that the fever would break and we would win. And it turns out that that didn't happen. And we have to beat them, as I said at the beginning. You can't just accept their version of uh, the way our democracy should work and expect that we're going to be able to get done what needs to be done. And that, by the way, I think the reason Trump got elected was not because people knew what they were getting. I think in a sense or that or that they agreed with his positions. I mean, his positions are so incoherent. It's almost impossible that there's even one other person in America that agrees with everything Donald Trump believes. But what they believed was our system of government was completely broken. What they believed was that the priorities of people in Washington were completely separated from their priorities as citizens of this country. And their view was, let's elect a reality TV star because to blow the place up. We can't do any worse. If I ask people in my state, why'd you vote for Donald Trump? 98% of them say we wanted to blow the place up. And I say to them, congratulations, you achieved your objective. Now what are we going to do? for our kids and for our grandkids and for America's role in the world, because blowing it up is not the solution. There's a lot of clarity to Donald Trump that he wants his country to be whiter. He wants it to have fewer immigrants. He wanted there to be a wall. He and that he knew who his enemies were. Right. Donald Trump came in, among other things, and was incredibly clear in who he was going to fight. But I want to ask the Obama question again, because I don't feel like I quite got the, the answer I'm looking for there, which is that Barack Obama, you're right, the fever didn't break. But again, he was a talented politician who also wanted to beat Republicans, who recognized that he was going to have to find ways to, to get the votes. And his presidency ends in Donald Trump. I mean, to some degree, as somebody who admired a lot of the way he approached politics, there is a lesson in that that I think has to be faced up to. And so I take your point that there is a period of time, certainly when Obama was optimistic that reelection would be enough and that Republicans would work with him in a way they hadn't before. But after that, he knew it wouldn't be. And so what, like, do you have a different theory of how Democrats should run elections if they're going to beat all these Republicans in places where they're currently losing? Like, what, what is, 
when you say beat them, what is the beat them? I mean, I do have a, I do, I mean, if you look at my climate plan, for example, it goes directly at the question of, you know, the working lands in this country and how we use conservation to sequester carbon, what we can do to pay people in these places to actually have a stake in what we're trying to do with climate. Nobody else has proposed anything like that. When I wrote, write my health care bill, you know, it's a bill called Medicare X, which is finishing the job on Obamacare by giving us a true public option. It starts in rural counties in this country where one or fewer, uh, where there's one or fewer insurance uh, providers. It rolls out to everybody in America over three years. But it's a way of saying, you are not invisible to us. We want to figure out how to bring the country together. That's what, by the way, what I meant about Trump. I don't think he's much of a fighter. I think he's a, he, uh, he won by running the most divisive election campaign ever. And do we think that it would be good for us to do that as Democrats? I don't, because I think a president should actually try to unite the country, not divide the country. Because I don't accept that we're as divided as, you know, some people might accept or as Donald Trump, you know, and and the divisions he's capitalized on are some of the darkest ones that we have as a society. So, look, I was there when President Obama was there. I think he was capable and effective. And and I think everybody was shocked by the degree to which McConnell and the Freedom Caucus acted out in ways that were um, outside of the American, the best American traditions and norms. I think that's true. I think when Mitch McConnell did what he did to Merrick Garland. It was so far outside of what had ever been uh, done in American history that um, it was almost shocking and surprising. I think now we know and we know the lengths that he will go to. And I think the American people deserve to know how damaging, you know, what he has done has been. And what and and so I I can't think of another idea except that We've got to figure out how to mobilize the American people to overcome this broken political system in Washington, D.C. It is not going to fix itself. So there was a bit of another idea in there that I want to draw out from you about political economy. So, I mean, part of what's going on here is that rural areas are quite Republican and they are way overrepresented. I mean, you talk about cable news watchers being overrepresented. Rural America is very overrepresented. And so you're building a, a, a policy platform that you think will be more targeted to, to their interests and bring them into the fold a bit more. Can you talk a bit more about how you're thinking about that? Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about it because I come from a state that's that's urban and rural. I come from a state that's a third, a third, a third. And I believe that there is a healthcare agenda in America that can appeal to every, to all these folks. Not Again, it's not that there won't be disagreements. It's not that people won't say that I'm trying to create a socialist takeover of the United States. But I'm not giving the my political opponents, I'm not making their job easier, you know, to separate the broad group of Americans from the proposals that we're trying to make. Making it easier isn't exactly what I mean, but, um, you know, I purposely don't want to make the, the p- proposals that I'm suge- suggesting vulnerable to McConnell's attacks and vulnerable to Trump's attacks. The minute Trump gets to say Democrats are socialists, he's disqualifying the American Party, uh, the, Amer- the de- de- Democratic Party. The minute he gets to say Democrats are for open borders, he's disqualifying the Democratic Party. The minute he gets to say Democrats hate Israel or are anti-Semitic, he's trying to quali- disqualify the American Party. And what I'm saying is if we want to make progress, we need to be smarter than we have been and we need to be more strategic than we have been. And we need to understand where the attacks are going to come. Every day, every day, 
McConnell goes to that floor and he says, look at how great the Republicans' economy is. And we know, and then he says, we know the socialist policies that they're going to propose when they come in. And we should just be aware of that. But they've been saying that, and Bernie Sanders is way ahead of Donald Trump in head-to-head polls. Is it possible they're just wrong about the American people being uh, angry about the idea that somebody might give them a socialist health care plan? Well, I think that every, I hope that, I hope that every single Democrat in the field, and I expect that every Democrat in the field could beat Donald Trump. I hope that they will. And I hope that's what the polling will look like on election day. Uh, I think that my sense of it is, is that the American people on health care very much want a public option. They want to be able to choose that for their family. I think they do not want Medicare for all in the way at least Bernie has proposed it in his legislation which outlaws all private insurance in this country except for cosmetic insurance or cosmetic surgery insurance. I don't think that's what the American people want. Bernie can say 75% of America supports Medicare for all, but they don't. The minute they know that it means that they're going to have to give up the private insurance that they have or that their friends and neighbors are or that we have to pay um, you know, $30 trillion for it. I mean, my plan, my, my plan that would reduce childhood poverty in America by 40%, the American Family Act, that would end the most extreme childhood f- poverty in our country, uh, would cost 3% of what Medicare for all costs. It would transform the lives of people all over this country. So I'm glad we're in the debate. I think we should have the debate. I, I think that we can put together an agenda that can begin to move us forward as Americans and and I think make the Democratic Party far more coherent in the end than we have been recently. So the Medicare for all folks, if they're sitting here, they would say, well, yeah, look, that $30 trillion, that, that rolls up what people are paying for employer-based care now. It rolls up what employers are paying. And overall, it's cheaper that national health expenditures go down because you can bargain prices down. So it's a big number, but in aggregate, people are paying less. They get higher wages and people are going to love that. I don't I don't disagree with that academic observation. Uh-huh. This is an issue of millions of people in my in my in this country and in my state who do not have health insurance and who need health insurance, who do not have a primary care doctor and 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 can't, as I did, have the benefit of somebody diagnosing their prostate cancer, for example. And when Vermont can't pass it. And when Colorado defeats it by 80 percent, I think we should ask ourselves how to create a set of circumstances where if Vermont wants to go and try again on single payer, they should be able to do it and they should be able to do it quickly. And if California wants to do it, they should be able to do it and they should be able to do it quickly. Or if Colorado wanted to do it, we should be able to do it. But the reason it could not even get to a vote in Vermont was because of the cost. And, and, and by the way, Vermont has been described, as you may know, often as one of the places least or most likely to be able to handle a single payer system. Uh, and the governor there honestly said, I wish that we had told people the truth when this all started about what we could achieve. So I want people to have health insurance. I think it is an absolute disgrace that this country is the only industrialized country in the world where people don't have universal health care. And to get universal health care, you need to propose stuff that people are going to broadly support, not propose stuff that's so easily pushed aside. What about there, there's a set of policies in between sort of uh, your your Medicare X plan and then the um, Medicare for all, the sort of Medicare for America branch of policies where you yeah. 
What do you think of those? I'm far more open to those. And even with my plan, I mean, if you had 37 million people in my plan, that's as many people as live in Canada. So, I mean, if you're for single-payer system, there's a good example of a single-payer system for 37 million people in America. I think we have to do something. We need some public option. You know, the private insurance market is a complete disaster. But that doesn't mean that, you know, 180 million people are going to be willing to give it away. Right now, the way your plan is structured, employers could not buy into the Medicare plan. Should they be able no, to? No, they, well, after the, after the first few years, they can buy into the Medicare plan. So it, it has a phase y- in yeah, there? Yes. Do you think they would? I do think they would. I think a lot of people would. I think a lot of businesses would. Why do you think employers have wanted to keep healthcare under their control? This is one of the great questions in healthcare policy. Why do they want this to be part of their role? I don't think anybody would want the system that we had if we were starting over from scratch. I don't think anybody would. And I, I don't think employers would. Employers would say, you know what, my job is figuring out how to, how to manufacture bushings. It's not figuring out how to contend with the broken healthcare system that we have. But unfortunately, we, we're not starting from scratch. We've got to figure out how to build on the best parts of the system that we have and replace the ones that are totally broken. And we, and we've, but we've got to make progress. I mean, I've got, Ezra, I was in a meeting in my state within the last six months in a rural county in, in the northern part of my state. I, have these, I do these meetings around Colorado where, you know, where I say, tell me about raising a kid in this county or that county. It's a way of getting away from the cable television talking points. Because when kids, people actually talk about their kids, they forget all of that, whether they're watching it on Fox or any other network. And it became clear during the course of this conversation that only three people in the room had health insurance. The school principal who got it from the school district, the county commissioner who said he didn't have it before he was a county commissioner, and that one person in the room who's that person who walked through any wall to be able to, you know, she's the person who... Who, who who puts up the website saying, come move to this county, right? And at one point in the conversation, this guy who had moved back to the community, having lived away to buy a restaurant in a bowling alley, said, my wife and I are working 50 hours a week and we can't hire anybody. Uh, and we've had to cut back the hours of, of my restaurant. And I said, well, why can't you hire anybody? And he said, well, because they lose their welfare if they come work for me. And I said, what do you mean by their welfare? And he said, they're Medicaid. So here you have a situation where people that want to work can't work because if they work, they lose their benefits. And uh, a business owner who's working 50 hours a week and can't afford health insurance, you can't tell me that 85% of the American people wouldn't want to solve that problem. They would. They would. But because we never present it in a way that can overcome the very predictable attacks from self-interested politicians in Washington, D.C. or self-interested special interests, we never get to a place where we're sitting in a room with those people saying, OK, what is it we're going to do about this? That is, that is just such an absurd situation. And that is the situation that our country confronts. One of the things that the folks who are more liberal in this conversation will say is that it doesn't matter what you propose, the attacks are all the same. People are not fact checkers. They, you know, Obamacare got attacked for death panels. The public option got killed in Obamacare for ridiculous reasons. And that the the issue here is that there isn't there isn't some magic message. And then also the more complicated it gets, the more it's got phase in patterns and, you know, people can buy in, but not yet. And like, you know, the argument that the folks who've 
swung far hard to the left on this say. It's just like, just give everybody the thing. Make it simple. Don't like they're going to attack it no matter what. And the attacks are going to be effective no matter what. Just make it simple. And you're just point there about Medicaid and Obamacare and possibly like losing your Medicaid because you're now making more money. So you got to go into the subsidies that will get you into the exchange. That it's that effort to which all came from trying to protect it from other attacks that it wouldn't be socialism and you weren't you know doing a government takeover. That it's that effort to craft a plan with the attacks in mind at the front end that makes something end up being complicated and attenuated and compromised down. And that ends up being its problem down the road. I agree that things should be simple. And I don't think my plan is more complicated or attenuated than Bernie's plan or or harder to explain. Uh, I don't think a public option is is hard for people to understand. Um, I do think that we have to make progress on health care in this country. So having a plan that will never pass the United States Congress um, seems like a bad starting point ever. Having a plan to deal with climate change that the unions in America can't support seems like a bad place to start. It doesn't mean that, y- you know, you don't end up having battles with people along the way, but I think that we should be building support for these things, not not dividing even the Democratic Party against itself. And again, this is not a call. You said more liberal, and I appreciate the use of that word because often what people say is more progressive. And I I don't accept that not delivering for the American people is progressive. I just don't accept it. The kids in my old school district actually need us to make some freaking progress. And we have not made much progress in the last 10 years. Think about what we've done. What have we done? In the last 10 years? The, the Affordable Care Act, Dodd-Frank, and Trump's terrible tax bill. That's what we've done for 10 years. You know, we can't we can't even pass a a funded five-year transportation bill while China is building roads and bridges all over the world. While they're building fiber optic cables, 3,000 miles of fiber optic cables from Latin America to Africa. We can't even pass a you know a temporary bill. We've been the in the 10 years that I've been, 40% of the time we've been under continuing resolutions in the Congress. You want to say what that is real quick? Temporary budgets because uh, politicians back there can't actually agree even how to continue to fund the government. So I don't think you and I, I mean, I think that the the issue that we have maybe is that the argument isn't big enough yet, that we're not at the 150,000 foot level where we need to be to recognize just how far we have to go to make this place governable again. And what is our evidence for that? It's not just Donald Trump. It's not just Donald Trump. It's the decade before Donald Trump. Oh, I mean, I I say this to people all the time that in 2015, I was on panels about how American democracy is broken. And that was before Donald Trump. Yeah, that's before Donald Trump. He's a symptom of our problems. And, you know, hopefully he'll be a one term president. And and that would be really awesome. But I also hope that once we get through this, we don't that we don't somehow i mean i guess the one thing you and i sometimes disagree about is whether we're on a one way ratchet or not yeah. you know like is is the polarization is is only going to go in one direction right it can only go in one direction that we can only continue to destroy our democratic institutions that we can only and i guess my view of that is if that's true then um then what we're looking at here is are the last days of the roman republic or the Roman Empire. If it's not true, uh, and I don't see any reason to give up on it yet, 
then we've got in front of us an incredible progressive era. Maybe this is the end of the Reagan era. Maybe that's what we're going through here. And Trump is the coarsest, and the Freedom Caucus are the coarsest manifestations of what Ronald Reagan said he was for. And maybe we'll come out of this era and have, a, have an era of incredible progress. Uh, but I think that progress is going to be built, you know, in America's neighborhoods, not in Capitol Hill. That's where it's going to come from. That's where the change always really comes from. I don't think it's about tweaking rules in the Senate or I, I think it's about building a movement in America that says we've had enough of this. Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight. And the question is, who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how? So you have a background, you mentioned this a minute ago, as a superintendent of schools. And there's been a swing in the party, in the Democratic Party, towards a pretty different approach to education. Bernie Sanders just came out with a plan that would pretty much um, end the Democratic Party support for charters. Elizabeth Warren has both a free college and a debt forgiveness plan. What do you think about the, the, the way that part of the party is going towards education and where would you go? Well, I agree. I agree with the uh, I haven't read her specific plan, but I agree that we need to do something about debt forgiveness in this country and that we've got to do something to make college much more affordable than it is. I mean, it's ridiculous. And by the way, it didn't happen by accident. This is a series of, of inattention and and a failure, one more failure on my generation's part to to do the right thing for the next generation of Americans. There's no reason these people should be paying, having to spend 20 years of their lives paying back their debt or 30 years of their lives paying back their debt. We didn't have to do that. And they're having to do it. One more example of our failure to do what we were supposed to do. I do think there's been a change in terms of the democratic approach on education. And I hope that what comes out of it in the end is a much more profound commitment by the party to support public education and to and to find ways of actually driving improvement in our public ed- education system because today unfortunately because of the deep deep inequities in our system it is reinforcing the income inequality that we have in America not 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 making it better not keeping things the same it's actually reinforcing the income inequality that we have that is an american tragedy and it is a tragedy for the children that are in those schools and we can't just say we're going to keep it the same. That can't be an answer. The answer has to be how do you create preschool for more kids in this country? How do you create um, schools that are K-12 schools, whether they're charter or they're traditional schools, that are schools any senator would send their kid? That ought to be the standard in my view. There's no reason why the standard should be lower than that. You ought to be able to, you ought to, be able to get kids who graduate from high school and want to go to college to be able to do that without bankrupting their families. But for the 70% of kids that don't go to college, they ought to have something in a high school and just after high school that takes them from earning a minimum wage to being able to support a family. We don't do that in America. And all that stuff may sound blindingly obvious to you. We're doing none of it. If you're living in poverty in our country, we are literally doing none of it for, for you. But then I want to pull you then to the specifics. Tell me how you do some of that. 
Um, because those are things you hear people say, but 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 give me the specifics because you actually you know this area much better than other people. Yeah, do. I mean, I think that you've got it. Look, we've got it's not easy. This is a very difficult challenge, and you know we have seen a lot of progress in Denver. A huge amount of uh, higher percentage of people graduating from high school and going to college than before. Far greater, better performance on. Um, on uh, college entrance exams and other kinds of things, but we still have massive achievement gaps in my district. So I'm not going to pretend that I know the answer. I do know that in many ways, the system we have is completely obsolete. So a lot of people have called attention to the fact that teachers are not being paid enough in this country, which is true. They're not being paid enough and they can't, they can't afford to, they can't afford to support their families. It's ridiculous. And why is that? Well, we have a system of the, the, the way we d- pay teachers and recruit teachers and, and try to keep them in our school systems and educate them all belongs to a labor market that, that discriminated against women and said women have two choices, one's being a teacher and one's being a nurse. And even though that form of discrimination no longer exists in the same way in our so- society, we're still behaving as though it did. So a system where we basically subsidize public education through the discrimination against women we're still pretending that we can somehow do that in America. And thank God we can't do it anymore, but we need to pay our teachers and we need to pay them in a way that makes sense for the 21st century, paying them ridiculously low current compensation that they can barely survive on and saying 30 years from now, we're going to give you a pension that you're going to be able to retire on is the architecture that we have today. But I don't think it's that appealing to people that are in the system. We're losing 50% of our teachers in the first 10 years. So the president can't change that, but the president, and and we don't have a federal solution for that. But as a country, we need to drag our education system into the 21st century, not just K-12, but higher education as well. And I think there are huge opportunities there. Like, it's hard to believe we could do more poorly than we're doing, which gives us a big opportunity going forward, I think. And I think, I think, I think that nobody knows this better than the teachers who are so devoted every day under incredibly difficult circumstances to trying to deliver for our kids. So I'm going to ask you here the, the, the easiest softball. I think you actually have the best education plan in the field so far, but it's not one people would think of as an education plan. It's your child poverty plan. Can you talk a bit about that? Because that's the one where I think you can actually, there are a lot of hard things in education, but the thing that we know above all is kids do better when they are not poor. And you have, a, you have, I think, a pretty far-reaching plan on child poverty. Can you talk a bit about how that plan works? Yeah, it's, thank you. It's called the American Family Act, and it is a um, very substantial increase in the child tax credit in this country. It makes it fully refundable, fundable, which means that the millions of people that don't get it today because they're too poor would, would get it from dollar one. Uh, and uh, it's paid out on a monthly basis instead of having it be paid as part of somebody filing their tax statement at the end of the year, which means it cash flows families to the tune of $300 a month for a kid that's under the age of six, $250 a kid uh, for a family whose kid is older than six. It is for all families until you're making about, I think it's $180,000 or so uh, as a family, which means it's it's in a sense something that's available to everybody that has a kid in America. As you mentioned, uh, Columbia University has looked at this and says that it would cut the child poverty rate in America by 40 percent. 
and it would end extreme childhood poverty in America, end it, the $2 a day poverty. And I don't think we could do anything better for poor families or working families than that. We should also increase the earned income tax credit as well. And the combination of those things would give the middle-class family a jolt that they have not seen in America in generations. And I think it's the most uh, ambitious anti-poverty program that we've had since Medicaid. And by the way, it would cost 3% of Bernie's plan, 3%. And it doesn't add a single bureaucrat to the federal government. So when I'm thinking about ideas that I think could get traction with the American people, that's one that I think could, especially in the context of what Trump chose to do with his tax bill. What is it? You, you, you've said a couple of times it costs 3% of the, the Medicare um, for all bill, which I, I'm going to put that comparison aside because I don't think it's fully fair. But how much does it cost? Um, it's about a trillion over 10 years. So that's a big bill. But like that, it seems to me there's a real one of the debates in the Democratic Party right now is do you want to do your big work through transfers or do you want to do it through services, right? There are some people who want to build really large new um, structures, you know, a new, a whole new government healthcare system or, you know, name your one. Or there's work like what you're doing or um, Kamala Harris with the LIFT Act. There are a couple out there that are really, really ambitious looks at how you do earned income tax or child um, or, or universal child allowances. And that seems to me to be something where the Democratic Party is a little bit uncertain now. Does it want to move towards building new structures or does it want to move towards a much more ambitious form of direct redistribution where people get to choose how to spend the money themselves? Yeah, I'm more in that camp myself. Tell me more about why on a theory level. On a theory level, because I have, you know, 10 years of experience with the federal government. And before that, I was a school superintendent for five years. Before that, I worked in state government. And I have a pretty good sense, I think, of what the strengths and liabilities are of, of government. And um, I think the Democratic Party has often been cast as the defender of bad government, probably unfairly. We should be for reforming government and making it work better for the American people. But I think where you can avoid the creation of more bureaucracy and avoid the creation of more structure and and get money into the hands of people who are actually making decisions for their families and for their kids, all things being equal, you're probably better off. I don't think you have to pick one or the other. I don't think I'm not for no government. I'm for having a robust government. But I'd like to have one that works a lot better than the one that we have. So, for example, while I'd be thinking about the tax credit that you and I just talked about, I'd also be thinking about how do we take the VA and actually put that into some mode of continuous improvement so that it's delivering far better health care to veterans than it is today. That's just one example, but there are numerous others where um, where I think the government needs a lot of updating. I mean, we are running a legacy system here, to say the least. Do you, do you want to talk a bit more about that updating? You know, something that has always really struck me was the total debacle of healthcare.gov. And after that, a lot was done. I mean, there's some really remarkable reforms made. The U.S. Digital Service, I think, was a, was a real step forward. There are a lot of things the Obama administration did. But one thing it was not able to do was reconstruct how government does procurement um, in a fundamental way. And the way the federal government does procurement is insane. It's a really, really, really bad way of doing that. And so whether you want to talk about procurement or not, I'm just curious how you think about some of those questions about actually updating government, because you don't hear much talk about that now, but you do still need to do it. 
first of all, it should be said, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to, there's no reason crying over spilled milk, but I was chairing the Democratic Senate campaign committee when that healthcare.gov went down. And it would be hard to overstate the damage that it did to the Affordable Care Act and to other things that we were trying to do at that time. Just at that moment, we had passed immigration reform through the Senate with 68 votes. And I, I'm absolutely convinced that one of the reasons why they were able to win their argument on that was because of healthcare.gov. They said, these people can't set up a website. How do you trust them to do uh, uh, to, to enforce the border. So these failures have political implications as well. And you're also right to say, as, as I mentioned um, uh, in the book, is that it works well now. You know, it, they, they fix the problem. Um, I'm not a genius or a, an expert on government procurement, except that I can also agree with you that it is utterly obsolete on the defense and non-defense side. The government needs to be able to move with much greater speed, much greater alacrity. It is a drain on innovation in this country that it can't move more quickly than it can because, I mean, you go, I was on one of the most um, advanced submarines in the world uh, in the last year. And it is, it has incredible capabilities. But I asked one of the guys that was on it, um, about a keypad that I saw that looked like it was 50 years old. And we got into a conversation about procurement. And he said, yeah, it takes me three days to teach somebody or a half a year to teach somebody how to use that keypad. When my daughter can teach herself how to use a, he said, when, when his daughter could teach herself how to use a smartphone in half an afternoon. And that is the kind of thing we're dealing with all over the, the federal government. And how you actually get anybody to pay attention to that long enough so that these agencies are put on, as I said, a path of continuous improvement. So part of their job is to make themselves better over time at what they do, make themselves more efficient, make themselves – I mean, the worst procurement of all is the IT procurement in the government. It It, it is terrible. And and the implementation of IT is costly and, and so – I think there probably nothing substitutes having really talented people look at these issues and be able to lead the federal workforce um, in addressing them. You're never going to build a huge political constituency for it, but it's important for us to do, I think. One of the things that we've been talking about here is your discomfort with the way part of the party's moved pretty far to the left. And part of the reasons move that way is that a lot of young people have moved very far to the left. So to somebody who's young, who's growing up in the system that has now radicalized you, Yes. And he looks around and says, we, ca- we can't do this by going back to the things we used to do. We need to go to a new economic system, a new political system. How do you make the case to them that there's more value in uh, the, the structures that we used to have more properly employed or the ideas that we used to hold more properly employed than they, than they think there is today? Well, if you are of a certain age in this country, you've never known anything other than this dysfunctional politics. Not, you, you've never known anything else. You, if, if you are 20 years old today, you've never known anything um, other than the America being at endless war, you know? And it is really – and, and, and an assumption one would make at their peril would be that people whose entire experience has been based on dysfunctional politics and – a, a perpetual war would believe that democracy was a really good form of government. That doesn't surprise me. You know, the polling numbers among young people don't surprise me. I think our job is to try to transmit the values, the enduring values that we have 
uh, had as a country. When I say our job, it's those of us that believe in this exercise in self-government. Part of that, by the way, is being honest about our failings, going back to the perpetuation of human slavery by the Constitution and the people who wrote it at the beginning of this country's founding. But it also is reminding people of the battles that were fought and won. You know, if you just assume it, you know, not only that everything's always going to be as screwed up as it is, but also that we have always had uh, as broad a democracy as we have today, as imperfect as it still is. If we remember that there were battles that were fought and won, I hope that the younger generation of Americans, in fact, I hope it's true of all Americans, but I particularly hope it's true of the youngest Americans, can take inspiration from those battles and can take some hope from those battles. Because I think there is so little hope that people can take from the current politics, this current political era. It's hard to be too cynical about it. The current era, it's hard to be too cynical about it. I think people can be too cynical about America, and I think people can be too cavalier about the progress that has been made, uh, and we need to continue to build on it because we are nowhere near where we have to be. I mean, we started the conversation talking about the lack of economic mobility in America. That's gotten much worse over the last 40 years, and it's, and it's tearing at our democracy. Um, we have to find ways of addressing that. Some people say it's impossible to address. It's just you know, the result of a worldwide market for labor and other kinds of things. I think the American people look at this and folks in Colorado look at it and say, nobody back there seems to have tried. That's why the American Family Act, I think, is such an important proposal, because it's responsive to that set of issues. So at the end of your book, you have a very extensive bibliography where you recommend a pretty broad range of books people might want to read to to better understand both the country itself and and your views on it. Talk to me a bit about some of the 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 more unusual choices in there. What what would you recommend people read? Well, I was so lucky over the last two years. I got to read a, a billion things because my friend Brad Jupp, who helped me with the book, is a middle school teacher, and so he knows more about American uh, literature and American historical documents than almost anybody I know. So he made binder after binder after binder of books of things that I read and. Um, and it made me, it actually made me angrier than I was before I started the work on how, how much we've allowed this, our, our institutions to fail and how little we're getting done in this generation. And it made me so optimistic about democracy. I mean, we're optimistic. It made me so, it made me cherish the idea of democracy. It made me cherish the idea of what it means to live in a country where the people govern the country. We don't live in that country today, but I refuse to accept that we can't get back there. And in order to think about that, I mean, I went back to Plutarch to read stuff that he was writing uh, 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 and all the way, you know, through Walt Whitman and to somebody, I'll give you the name of a couple books that I read recently that are in that. One is a book by a guy named Casey Gerald, G-E-R-A-L-D, called There Will Be No Miracles Here, about a guy who grew up, it's, it's, he's, I called him after I read the book, he called me back, and I said, I can't tell how old you are from this book, and he said, are you 33? He said, no, that was Jesus Christ, I'm 31 years old. He has written a 400-page memoir about America at the age of 31, unlike anything that I've ever read in my life. So I would read that book. I would read David Blight's book about Frederick Douglass. I argue in the, which is new, I argue in the book that, um, that uh, 
Frederick Douglass, in my opinion, is as much a founder as the people that wrote the Constitution. And actually, I argue further that when you think about what our responsibility is as citizens um, in a republic, that we too need to think of ourselves as founders, that we have that elevated as a responsibility as citizens. And when you think about the stuff we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast about you know, the filibuster or this rule or that rule or how torn up it is. I think it's important to remember the kind of stakes that somebody like Frederick Douglass faced and what he was able to accomplish in his lifetime um, working outside of government and with people in government. And then I think Jill Lepore has done us a favor with her book, These Truths, which is a history of the, it's a one volume history of the United States, which among other things presents very clearly the the role that race has played in this country and the legacy that slavery continues to play in our country, which is something I think we don't, we have never really faced as Americans. Uh, and um, she does a, she does a very good job of making it unavoidable in, in her work. ta Coates is listed there. I can't believe there's not an article by Ezra Klein. That is a terrible oversight. I can't believe mine, you're mentioning this, this on the air, just throwing me even more shade here. A- a- anything. Any, I know I'm serious. I, I should have. Uh, my, 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 my work's, my work's been mediocre at best of, of late. That is not true. It's not true. Well, that's and, right. That's right. I think, I think, I think the question we all have is, I mean, you know, we are, we are at the depths right now, but we have been here before and we've got to find a way to come out of it. And I just, just as one person, I, I can say, having observed this up close for the last 10 years, there is absolutely no way we can continue to persist in the way that we have been going and expect to solve any of the problems that we care about. There's no way. It's impossible. Senator Michael Bennett, thank you very much. Thank you, Ezra. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Senator Bennett for being here. Thank you to Topher Ruth for engineering, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back in a couple of days. Hold up. 